Welcome to episode 10, Homeostasis, Understanding What You Are Walking Into When Working with the Families of Adolescents, by Talon Olguin, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hi there, my name is Talon Olguin and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. You are listening to the CE credit hours of homeostasis, understand what you're walking into. For this particular course, it's going to be targeting the work with families, uh, identifying the strengths and weaknesses within a family and the subsystems that you're walking into. I specifically applied this course to adolescents as well, since I think it changes the dynamics of a family quite a bit. You have quite a few more opinions, ideas, changing that is natural within a family unit at this time, which is also resisted against by multiple family members. So as a clinician, you're well aware that your role is constantly changing. It is having to look at different dynamics. It's having to provide different insight. There are times where you step forward more. There's times where you step back. But now you're going to be doing that with a multitude of people in the same room at the same time. And you're going to be dealing with subsystems, triads. You're going to be triangulated into things that you may not even know about. So one of the key tasks that you're going to want to do is be very aware of what you're walking into. And this is where the concept of homeostasis for me becomes so important. When you really think about it, homeostasis is the general act of something trying to remain within a regular state of being, something that it is familiar with, something that it is comfortable with, and it's going to be naturally moving back to that space, whether it is good or bad. A lot of the times this applies to medicine. It applies to just a, a, quite a few different aspects of life. We're specifically going to be applying this to families because when you have a family system that's walking into your therapy room or if you're doing home visits and you're walking into their household, Either way, you're going to be dealing with a dynamic and different subsystems that need to be pointed out to you if you're going to make any true change. On top of that, you're going to have at least one adolescent, uh, according to this course and what we're going to try to apply it to, and knowing where they play a role. Because they're going to kind of be all over the place, and it's going to be your job to rein them in while also giving them and the family members a voice. So with this... You know, that's kind of why it's important. You don't want to be caught in any unhelpful dynamics. You don't want to become part of this, this status that they have within the family. You're going to want to be outside of it. In order to do that and make real change, you have to recognize what's going on. So something that I'm really going to tell you to do is, one, pay attention to the roles within a family. There are going to be multiple ones. We like to use the common terms of identified patient, lost child, uh, you know, the, the mascot, the enabler, things like that. And what we want to kind of avoid is that being their one role within the family. It will constantly be shifting depending on the dyads and the triangulations that you're working with. They may shift as time continues throughout the, 
the treatment with them. They also may shift in who they're working with and who they're talking to. One person may have way more enabling tendencies 90% of the time, but when they're working with this one person, they become more of a mascot. And that's something that you really want to pay attention to. We all have habits. We all have things that we do relationships that we go towards, ways that we handle things, but different people will bring out different things within us. And recognizing that within yourself as a therapist, but also in the different dynamics in the room will help you greatly. You're also going to want to pay attention to the triangulation or what I, I often refer to as just the different triangles in the room. Who is drawn into what? What is the power play that's happening? What's an issue that be, should be solved between these two people? And who's the third person who's brought in to mediate it? of really paying attention to that because you will not only be drawn into that, but you will see it happen time and time and time again. You will see children get roped into family discussions about finances. Uh, you will see them talk about the different dynamics of who's living in what, what room. You will see things about just, sorry, um, you will see things about why parents argue about different topics that kids really don't have a lot of investment or interest into, and you will see them get pulled in. You will see kids get pulled into their sibling squabbles that have nothing to do with them and put them in more of a parental role rather than someone who is a sibling. So with this, you want to be very aware and the way that I really encourage you to do this, when you first have a family who sit down, sign your family contract, go over informed consent, going over <coughs> confidentiality, really pay attention to where people sit, who they're kind of aligning with. Watch. Watch and see what the dynamics are. Now, I'm not talking about having them sit and argue with each other over the reason that they're there for the first 45 minutes of the session. I'm saying spend a little bit more time going into what roles they're playing in that moment. How do they argue with each other? Who jumps in and saves who? One of my uh, favorite techniques when first starting with a family is I just ask an open-ended question, and it's something that quite a few of my colleagues who specialize in this field as well will do, and just say something very basic like, all right, so would someone like to tell me what's going on for the family? You know, don't direct it towards one person. Don't, you know, don't just look at one or, or even, you know, maybe you know already what's going on and you know that they're here for, you know, their one child and everyone else is just a bystander who just happens to be in the way. Instead of saying, oh, so we're here for, for so-and-so. You know, and it is, it's easy to get trapped in that because a lot of clinicians will hear for, you know, an hour or 40 minutes about all the problems that are going on with the family and, and this child is the source and they're causing so much anxiety for everybody. I would really challenge you to step outside of that and just ask a general question. This will give you, you know, anywhere from five to 10 minutes, depending on how comfortable you are with conflict, how the family responds, an idea of really kind of what you're stepping into because the, each family will be different. Even though, you know, sometimes it'll feel similar, like, oh, I've dealt with this before, or I've seen this before, or I know exactly how to handle it. There will be nuances that you really want to pay attention to. So with that, I suggest five to 10 minutes of letting the family kind of talk over themselves, cut each other off. 
you know, see who who interrupts who, see who doesn't talk, see who gets ignored. I remember one time I was sitting with a co-family therapist, and this was quite a big family, and there was one child, she was second youngest, and she was in the corner as her family was arguing, we just asked this question, and she just started crying. It was completely ignored. No one paid attention to it. No one said anything. It wasn't until both my colleague and I kind of looked at each other and said, have you noticed that your daughter is crying? That the whole family was just shocked. They were so involved in their own arguments with each other that even five, I think this is about maybe seven minutes in, they hadn't noticed that their youngest, second, their youngest daughter, their second youngest child was sobbing in the corner. She could not handle conflict. And that touched on so many different things and really allowed for a pause. So that's where I would strongly encourage you to do this. Um, you know, it'll it'll really help you get down basically to, to the nitty gritty, which is what you want. It's so easy to get trapped up in all of the storytelling, all of the he said, she said, the, you know, the... They don't, they don't talk to me enough. It's so easy to get trapped in that. But what you want to find are the patterns. What you want to find are the reinforcements for the patterns. And you can't do that until you were really aware of what's happening in this family. So know that not only is there a homeostasis and a state of being that they're going to want to remain in, even if it's not healthy, it's still comfortable. It's still something that they know. You know, the, the phrase that I was taught by my supervisor back when I was an intern and, and really starting to work with families when she was explaining homeostasis was better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And it really has rung true in so many situations. Families would rather face all of these problems with residential and hospitalization than really challenge themselves on changing their own behaviors. And it's never malicious. It doesn't normally come from that standpoint. It's because it's scary and every single person has to recognize their own peace in it, which is hard. It's incredibly hard. So with that, you know, I would, I would, very much focus on that. What's more, you are walking into a family dynamic and we have our own. We have our own history as clinicians. We have our own families. We have our own perceptions of how families should be run or how they shouldn't be. We're going to have countertransference to all of the people in that room. What you need to be aware of is how it's going to affect you. And that's also where you want to know what you're getting into. You want to spend that specific time addressing okay, this is this person in this room, this is this person in this room, how are they affecting me? I'm not going to spend too much time on countertransference because I know there's a lot of talks and seminars that go over that and it's really drilled into us as clinicians to be very aware of it. What I will say is it will change. You know, it, it'll change because the roles in the family will change and you're going to want to be particularly aware of that. Because there may have been one sibling or one parent or, or, or whoever in the room that you initially felt, you know, was very open and trusting and willing for these changes. And then suddenly you're kind of getting shut down and it's reminding you of a lot of things. It's making you frustrated and now you're finding yourself pushing them away and not really relying on them. And that's also something you want to be aware of because I guarantee they're doing that to the other family members as well. You know, that is a defense mechanism. And if you can recognize your feelings in that situation, you can see how it is affecting that homeostasis when you're not present. 
because I, I can pretty much guarantee that if someone's making you feel a certain way, they're making someone else within that family unit feel a certain way. With that, and just along with the counter-transference talk, be aware of the transference. You're going to be labeled as either good or bad quite frequently within a family system, and it will be dependent on who you're perceived as agreeing with. So there may be one family member who's like, oh, wow, that therapist totally gets me. They understand why I'm struggling, that my family's not nice to me. And then you're going to have another one who's like, I can't believe they're taking this person's side. And being aware of that because you're you will easily – be kind of coerced into being triangulated into that. Their transference onto you will pull you into that triangulation. When you are working with someone individually, it's very easy to call it out. You know, when you see it, when you when you see someone responding to you a certain way and it's affecting their treatment, it, it's, it's much easier, in my opinion, to be able to say, hey, I've noticed this. Have you noticed this? The problem that you have with transference in a family session or even a couple session is that now you have a, a third person who has an opinion on the matter. And it's much harder to do that, you know, one-on-one -on -one work of trying to help them, trying to help them work through it when you kind of have someone who's interrupting. Or even if they're not interrupting, the person that you're trying to talk to feels as if that third person is judging them. You know, so that's just something I would be aware of really being comfortable calling people out on something that you're seeing directly in that moment, whether it's the, tr the transference, the counter-transference with yourself, the dynamics and the role shifts that you're seeing. I, I can't stress enough how important it is to be aware of all of these things. Okay. So what I will say, and, and there's, there's a reason I, I specifically picked adolescence to talk about with the family work. It's because the family roles are naturally changing. It is the progression of change that happens at this time. It is how the family evolves. It's how the individual evolves. And to avoid that will just automatically create conflict and strife. With that, you have now a person who has far less of a filter for good or for bad far less of a filter who's going to be willing to say things, who wants change. They kind of want to upset that homeostasis the majority of the time. Sometimes, you know, you will get those highly anxious, stressed out kids who are so afraid to step away from their family that, you know, they cling and they kind of regress a little. What you want to do is you want to, do, you want to help them kind of find themselves. The majority of the time, though, you will have kids who kind of want to step away, are either afraid to, are, you know, stepping away so much that they're really isolating themselves, are not being permitted to find themselves, so they act out rebelliously. You know, you get a, a lot of things, and you want to use this. When you're working with younger kids, it tends to be a lot more play therapy and interpretation of what they're saying and doing in a, in a more basic level, which takes an entirely different skill set. I find this very hard to do personally. I much prefer talk therapy, which is why I think adolescence is something that I I particularly enjoy. And that's something you, you will have to learn about yourself is what do you enjoy when you're working with families. With this, I would say, and, and I've talked to many colleagues about this as we've had consults and, and all sorts of things of really 
utilizing the teenager and this desire for change, this desire to grow up and find out who they are because they're going to push the family in a way that's natural. It's not just some random person coming in and saying, oh, I'm noticing this. It's also the teenager saying, I want this. I want to try this. You know, I've noticed this. I've noticed you and dad don't sleep in the same room. I, you know, I noticed that you don't talk to grandma. Is that, you know, you've told me before that's because she's hurt you. You know, why can't I talk to her? They're going to ask all these questions without these filters that just naturally start conversations, right? And you're going to want to figure out how to tailor that to your advantage. In the beginning, it's probably going to be more angry than anything where, they're blaming people, they feel trapped, they feel constricted. You can use that too. You know, you want to help give them the language instead of just the angry words, you want to help give them the language of sadness or, you know, I feel hurt that you don't trust me rather than, you know, F you, you don't, you don't believe in me. That's totally different than I'm hurt, you don't trust me. You know, and, and that instigates a different conversation. So you really want to use this and, and, kind of view them as a little bit of an ally for change uh, because that homeostasis given its own opportunity won't change you know water is not going to change to to ice or some type of steam liquid unless you either heat it up or freeze it you need something to really be that agent that shakes things up so what I'm going to do throughout this talk is I'm going to have a base family that I've uh, I've modified it a little bit, but essentially it's it's a family that I want you to think of if you don't have one that you're working with currently. If there is a family that you're working with, please feel free to apply them to this situation and and really try to change uh, any thinking process that you think might be helpful for you in in conceptualization. In this family, though, I'm going to have a a mom and a dad um, and three kids. I'm going to say that this family is coming in for their middle child of, you know, she is acting very loud, defiant. She's engaging in substance use. She's starting to engage in sneaking out behaviors. So uh, for whatever reason, whether because the therapist called it or the family said they wanted it, they're going to do family therapy at this point. And it also might have been because the client was refusing to go in for individual. That's all sorts of reasons. But within this family, in this mock family that we have, uh, we're going to have the dad, and I kind of want you to picture someone very stern, often quiet, doesn't get too involved in the household um, raising. You know, he tends to stay out of it quite a bit more. And then we have mom. In this, she's kind of, you know, pretty lonely overall. It's something that you see. She comes from a very caring place. Her, her life is kind of invested in her children. Uh, you know, she really finds her identity in them, but she's very lonely. And kind of one of the first things that you notice is her and dad don't sit next to each other in the room. Um, they're kind of on opposite sides. And the more you talk with them, the no, the more you see that they're kind of unofficially separated. They don't spend any time together. You know, there, there hasn't been any date nights, any, anything like that that would indicate more closeness that you would be hoping for. Um, so, and then we have next the oldest daughter. We're going to say that she's 17. She's incredibly mature, very individualized. She has really kind of found herself, though she relates most with dad uh, for whatever reason, you know, whether it's their temperaments, their quiet state of being, those two relate more than anyone. But for the most part, she tries to separate herself from the family. 
Next, we have the middle child, the one that they're claiming is the problem or identified patient. This would be the 14-year-old girl who's really engaging in high-risk behaviors. Lastly, we're going to have the brother. He's going to be about 13 years old, and he's very insecure, uh, you know, when you really start talking to him. He, he can get a bit deceitful, and for the most part, he's calm, but that's also because he's lying a little bit, and then he has kind of these explosive behaviors that seem to come out of nowhere. So with this, I, I really want you to just imagine sitting in a room with this family or one that's like it and what questions you would be asking yourself, what you would want to know, what you've already observed, what you think you need to pay attention to more or ask more questions about. With this, you're also going to want to know what are the cultural implications of this family. Every culture, and we can combine cultures you know, have different mindsets, have different units, have different value systems, and where that plays a role. You know, and I'm not just talking about ethnicity or race. I'm talking about the gender roles within that family. I'm talking about who works. Do both parents work? Do one does not? Uh, who is the primary caregiver? Are the grandparents involved? What are the religious components here? Because you're going to want to identify, again, really what you're walking into, what that homeostasis is, and what you are able to change according to those values, what you need to challenge according to those values. One thing I will say is historically in family therapy, and we see this a lot, um, you know, if, if you want, you can, you can reference Whitaker um, and Napier in the Family Crucible. They give a lot of really good examples about this, but we see that the head of the family should really be the parental unit. They can have so many support systems, grandparents, things like that. But that basis is what we kind of see being one of the more healthier patterns. Um, and then you have the, the kids who are underneath there. Now, who those parents view as their head of the family may be different. They may not view themselves as head of the family, and that's more than okay. They may defer a lot to their parents or someone that they trust, but in this in this view. We really want to look at who is the head of the household in this family sitting in front of me. Because if you don't have the head of the household there, it's really going to be hard to have change and you need to be able to recognize it. And the reason this system seems to work the best is because of the role of responsibility of the head of the household. There is a huge responsibility to financially provide, to teach values, to take on any of the consequences that a lot of the younger individuals will face. They also have quite a bit more experience. I would, I would say that a 50-year-old, 45-year-old, 40, 35-year-old, we can keep going down the line, has more experience in life than a 15-year-old. You know, I, I think we can, we can say that, and they can use that experience to really move things forward, to really help instigate that growth and change. And so you want them to have a little bit more say and responsibility in the household. They also have that insight, right? They, they've been through those situations before. They, maybe they didn't have the same technology that we do now, but they certainly had the problems with friends and bullying and, and trying to decide life decisions and dating. And they can kind of take a step back from it because they've been there. What's more, they have executive functioning, right? <laughs> the, the human brain is not typically developed fully from anywhere from about 24 to 25. That frontal part of the brain, the frontal 
lobes are still in development. And so that is involved with executive functioning and planning and and organization consequences. So if that's not fully developed, we do need people to help guide us. So this is kind of where that head of the household, head of the family role becomes so important. It is a lot of responsibility and it is, it's a lot of power. It's a lot of strength and it's, there's a lot of fear that's often put behind it too. Um, okay. So with that, I would particularly pay attention to whoever the parents are. And mind you, th- this situation could apply to a single parent household, to, you know, a same sex couple. To, I mean, there's so many. I've had a couple clients now whose grandparents have adopted them, you know, due to their biological parents not being able to provide. And it's, again, it's identifying who that head of the household is. You also want to pay attention to the sibling dynamics. Uh, you know, siblings, especially as they get older, generate more power. They generate more say, more more vocalization of what's going on and what they want to change. And what's more, they'll gang up on people, right? You know, it's no different than a clique that you find in high school of you've got a group of people who are telling another group of people what they think and what they want. And for some reason, you know, their words are more powerful. So if you've got, let's just say, this 14 and 13-year-old kind of ganging up on mom and saying what they want, that's going to be more powerful than just the 14-year-old doing it, right? Or if you have um, all three kids telling their parents, oh, you're not doing a good job parenting or we want this a certain way, it is much harder to fight against than, than, you know, just one kid. It's much harder to make an argument because you feel so much pressure as a parent. And you might as well as a clinician. So paying attention to these sibling dynamics is also very important. So I get a lot of questions about how this would impact your treatment. You know, I think we have the basics of, oh, okay, know what you're, know what you're doing, knowing who you're working with, but also families are overwhelming. As I kind of indicated before, you don't just have that one-on-one connection where you can really concentrate on this one person and spend, you know, six or seven sessions on what they specifically need. You don't get that. You have to do that with more than just one person. And then you have to manage their reactions and then manage another person's reactions and then keep this person engaged and involved. It is very difficult. And so it can become overwhelming. This is why I say don't get stuck in the details. You really want to find these dynamics in order to focus on the patterns. If you can focus on the patterns, you can really see the underlying cause and underlying need for these relationships. And that's what you address, you know, whether it's because, you know, kids don't think that some kids don't think that their parents can handle the truth or parents don't think their kids can handle the truth, whether it has to do with maturity Whatever it is of getting to that underlying issue will personally help you from being overwhelmed in the different situations. And I can, I can talk about that quite a bit. You know, there are, there's so many families out there who work so hard. There are so many families who have given up. There are a lot of families out there who, who just don't think that they're capable of change. And you being able to differentiate and help them see that change is a big portion of your job. All right. So um, another thing that we're just going to kind of hint on a little bit is when you're looking at these overwhelming dynamics, when you're trying to see what their goals are, 
they will often talk about something different than what they really want, right? So again, in this family, let's just say that they walked in, we did that initial, okay, so tell me what's going on. Tell me why you're here. You know, what are you hoping will come about the family work? And this is where you're starting to develop your goals. You're doing multiple things at once. You're seeing the dynamics, you're developing your goals, you're allowing them to um, process you. I mean, you're establishing yourself as the clinician, um, a little bit more of the expert, different people take different perspectives on the expert role, but essentially you're there to help. And oftentimes what, what'll happen is you will get the identified patient syndrome is what I like to call it. It is all becomes about that one person, you know? So in this story, it's all about the 14 year old daughter. She's smoking. She's trying to sneak out. She's ruining our, our marriage, you know, her siblings, um, their life is being ruined. They're going to get kicked out of their school because of her. You know, it all becomes, like I said, the, the identified patient syndrome. And that's not their real goal. You know, their goal is to get to a comfortable level where they feel like they can talk with each other and they don't have to deal with this stuff anymore. You know, and really pointing out that that to a certain extent, what's possible. A lot of parents and kids will talk about how they just want to feel validated. They want to feel important, that nobody listens to them. And really helping them understand that that is a goal that can 100% be worked on. It's not just, oh, now I feel listened to. It's deeper than that. So let's talk about that. How do you know that you don't feel listened to? How do you know when you do feel listened to? How do you feel important within your family? Because the feeling behind knowing that someone listens to you is so much more memorable than them being able to recite back what you said. You know, and letting them know that also goes both ways. And however you incorporate that into the treatment, but this is where that direct statements come in of really being able to see the dynamics and see what they're really wanting because most likely what they want as a family unit is to feel loved, is to feel important, and is to feel supported. How does that happen? Well, that's where you look at the dynamics and that's where you help them see what is and isn't working, right? Okay. All right. So with that, we're going to try, you know, talking a little bit more about this communication. Um, You know, teens, back to the ally thing, want to be heard. This is a new chapter for them. They came from a world when they were younger, let's just say 12, 11, where their parents really decided a lot of what was real and what wasn't. You know, they they helped push you towards certain friends. They picked your school. They have parental controls on the TV. They, they, they decide a lot. And kind of during this phase, you have differentiation where you're really trying to find that independence and separation from your family while still being a part of the family unit. So within that, you know, use this goes back to the using it. You want to use them as a catalyst. You want to have them express it. Anytime you need truth and you just feel like people aren't being honest, I would actually turn towards a little bit more of the identified patient because they have no reason to hold back. Yes, they're most likely going to be harsher. They're they're going to have things to say that other people don't want to see. So you're going to have to taper it down and reinterpret. But with this family dynamic of looking at how you can help them learn to communicate, because remember, they want change. They want the dynamics to be different, if only for the general process of growth and growing up. 
right? So in order to help this family grow, of really looking at where you can teach and where that structure is, of encouraging the entire family to do check-ins or work on their language about feelings or being able to see, okay, wow, you look really anxious right now. You know, dad, do you normally get so anxious? Oh, okay, it's not anxious, it's anger. Okay, so tell me where anger rests inside of you so I know how to pick this up in the future. Have Model it for them, see them how they do it, and then also have the other family members see it. That is increasing that communication, that skill point, right? Because once they're able to talk more about more than just the details, they can start addressing the patterns. They can address how this person shuts down when this person gets angry right? And that's really what you want. Also, we have so much data, so much data showing how different kids are affected by structure. And overall, kids do so much better with structure. And by kids, I truly need, you know, um, one or newborn to, to 18. We'll just, we'll just pick that. And uh, there's actually quite a bit of techniques that, and studies that prove that. So, um, you know, one of them I'd really encourage you to read would be retelling, reimagining, and researching a continuing conversation. It gets a little bit more into detail about that. Also, family therapy techniques um, by Fishman, I would say, is very good as well because it specifically goes into more of that structure and the different things you can do to instigate it. And I have another uh, talk that I go into a bit more of those techniques and what you can do. So I'm not going to talk about them too much here. But what I can say is that structure provides safety. It provides the ability to practice your communication skills, the ability to practice calling out patterns and what you want to change and what the family wants to change. So with that, I would really research those and see what you feel comfortable with. There's so many, you know, different versions from, you know, Mnuchin's, work, uh, different family therapy techniques, all, all sorts of stuff. And when you find your niche and what really connects with you, I would practice that regularly because it will help you get to understand more of what you're walking into. It'll help you understand more of what you're trying to change and what the family wants to change and, and their best response to it. Because if you feel confident, if you're able to create that structure, if you're able to really provide that safety valve for everybody, uh, it will be far easier to change this homeostasis sorry, into something that is more fit for the family as it grows. Okay. All right. So with that, um, let's go a little bit back to this family. Um, I just want to talk for a minute about how this family got to how they are and, and why they're there. So with this, I want you to kind of picture it. We have daughter who really, the oldest daughter, who's really connecting with her father. You know, so they kind of have this dyad between them where they get along more. They ruminate over how the other family members are too emotional, too crazy. There's just too much for them. And, you know, 17-year-old daughter can't wait to be able to move away and She's probably only going to really talk with her dad. And dad is kind of like mentally freaking out about this. Of his one support system that he feels like gets him, who, you know, agrees with him, that he doesn't have to work as hard with because there's just that connection, the same thinking process. She's leaving. So one is responding a little bit out of fear and anger, right? Dad, Dad's going to be losing that support system. 
And then daughter, you have here, she's worried about her dad because now he's going to be with these three other people who just can't regulate themselves. And she's excited because she's get, getting to go away. But then there's the fear and then there's the excitement. So that's the dynamic that you have there, right? And then with the the mom and the youngest son, the 13-year-old, I kind of want you to picture this this more enabling behavior of mom is so lonely and she's really looked for that connection with dad, but for whatever reason, it's not there, right? Whatever reason, it's just kind of, it's, it's disintegrated. It's harder to find. They don't connect with things. She's really leaned towards the youngest son, you know, the brother. And so that's where quite a bit of his dysregulation comes in because she allows the dysregulation. She allows the the disruption. She kind of covers for him of he can do no wrong because that's her primary support system. You know, that's someone that she can rely on to be there for her or, you know, even if she has to buy him something, at least he'll be there. And this dynamic has just formed over time and you're really seeing this. And then you've got this really kind of lost child. Again, dynamics will change. You've got this lost child of a daughter who's 14, who's acting out, who is looking for anyone to care about her, for anyone to spend specific time with her while also trying to find herself in this chaos of life, right? And she's gotten some from her friends. She's gotten some from her teachers, but it always seems to go. And mom and dad just, the dynamic, you know, to her is just broken. That's how she describes it. She says they should just be divorced. They don't even like each other. You know, and this is the dynamic that I'm talking about. You have so many um, dyads, so many triangles going on here. You've got mom and dad who are constantly being pulled apart now by a system that they've accidentally or on purpose, whichever one it happens to be, created where they purposefully go to other people rather than than each other, right? And this is now putting the the 13-year-old son and the 17-year-old daughter in a position of power and authority they really shouldn't have. So, you know, the the 17-year-old the daughter makes suggestions and dad agrees with her. So he goes and fights with the other family members about it. The 13-year-old son does something to act out um, and mom goes and fights with the other family members about it. And now they just have this, this power play that is not healthy. They have too much say. They, they don't really get to learn from these experiences. And then now, you know, in an effort to keep herself moving forward, this identified patient, this 14-year-old is acting out. She has the most power out of anybody because if she's suicidal or she's cutting herself or she's out doing drugs or she's missing for two hours, doesn't go to school, the whole family has to drop everything. Right, the whole family has to go to the hospital. The whole family has to go to therapy. The whole family is now getting a DCFS report for possible neglect because she's run away so many times and they're terrified. So you can see now she's at the very top rung and she really shouldn't be. But it comes back down to the head of the family, right? Who are the people who should have the most power in the family? They're the people who have the responsibility the insight, the experience, and the executive functioning. That's what it comes down to. So within this family dynamic, how do you redo that? And until you understand why these dynamics formed, change will be very hard. It will be incredibly difficult to reform and build insight into what the family actually wants 
unless you can see this pattern and why it's there and what's reinforcing it. Really what it comes down to is both parents are lonely. Both parents are looking for some form of validation. They're looking for kindness. They're looking for a connection. They're looking for fun and they're not getting it. So they're going to opposite directions and whatever happened along that way, their communication split. It's just not there. So it was replaced, right? Um, one thing that will be very helpful for you with working with families, and I strongly suggest doing this, is when you're trying to find these dynamics, these patterns, they're often generational. It's often something that people have learned from their own parents or grandparents or people who are important in their life. And you can kind of see where the patterns are. What's more, if you know these generational patterns, they're easier to build insight into right? It's, it's far easier to say, well, you know, your, your parents did this and look, it looks as if they learned it from their parents. So right now we have two generations before you engaging in this same pattern. Is there a possibility that you may have learned something similar, you know, and, and it allows a different avenue to be able to look at what the family is going through that maybe is easier to hear. With that, I would really strongly suggest a genogram. It does take time. And it is kind of funny and a little bit amazing how different people will perceive things and then how similar people will perceive things when you're doing your genogram. You know, when you're looking at, oh, what's the relationship between grandma and grandpa on dad's side or, you know, aunt Tessie and, and, you know, her, her, her partner, what, what is that? And, you know, different perceptions of all that and, and the history behind it. And it's actually a really good bonding experience if you have people engaged. I've had quite a few sessions where, you know, kids will be like, oh, I didn't know that. Um, we have an uncle who's an alcoholic that we've never talked about or I didn't know about. Uh, it's actually quite good for a lot of the family and, and a good genogram will at least take 30 minutes. I highly suggest a full family session because it allows for that discussion. I've also had it where, you know, I've done genograms separately over the phone and then we, or in person, and then we bring them together and we combine them and we go over the differences. And again, it leads to that different communication. It's just more openness, more vulnerability because it's your thoughts and perceptions of, of everything that's going on. Um, so I think I said it, but I like the, the book Genogram Assessment and Intervention. It's been very helpful for me in terms of narrowing down and minimizing uh, my labels and my work. And then when I have issues with the family later on and, and I'm forgetting dynamics or, you know, I'm trying to look for something new, it's super easy to pull back out, you know, even if it's two months later after working with a family and say, oh, that's right. I forgot about this. Or, wow, I didn't see that initially when I was working on it. Uh, it's so incredibly helpful. And because you have the teens who want to change, right, they want to be able to communicate. You also have this level of perception from them that they're going to be more verbal about. You know, they're going to say, what are you talking about? You hate grandma, mom. Like you hate, you, you, you hate her. You, you never talk, you talk to her once a year. And again, it's like that truth is going to come out and maybe the parent will say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, I just don't talk to her when you're around. And that also leads to a discussion because maybe, you know, in this case, this 14 year old daughter had the perception that, oh, you just don't get along with your mom, you know, and, and how would you get along with me? You know, things like that. And it really just encourages further conversation and change. Okay, so with that, 
you know, we're going to talk about those dynamics and what's encouraging it. We, we did go over the family again in terms of the different roles and structure. So when you're working with that, I want you to also pay attention to the resistance that you get, right? I want you to pay attention to the resistance that you have from the family members and what they're not wanting to change, what they're not wanting to talk about because there's something reinforcing it. Is there, let's say, a particular reason why mom and dad continue, you know, like three or four weeks into the session, continue to refuse to sit next to each other or they don't make eye contact? What is reinforcing it? Is it the relationship between oldest daughter, um, youngest son, middle child? Is it a buffer, right? Is it something that they can actually connect over as having a child who has a problem? That's one way that they do connect. I'm really looking at that because the fastest way in a family that you will see change, and, and this isn't true for every situation, but for quite a few of them, is through that parental dynamic, right? If you can really get to the bottom of showing them how to have conflict, of showing them how to communicate, of how to be honest, and also it does help if the couple is doing their own work because there are some things the kids just don't need to be present for. If you can work on that, it's incredibly helpful. I primarily do this through the insight, right? Um, Most parents are just feeling so overwhelmed that they don't even go to the other person anymore. And if you can shift that dynamic and kind of take that triangulation out, take the child out and have them work on themselves, it makes it easier uh, in the long run for everybody, for you, for them, for the kids, for the whole change and, and progress that you're trying to make. I would like to spend a little bit of time right now going over the single parent aspect of this because it's slightly different and there's a lot of single parents that you're going to work with. Most single parents are incredibly overworked, right? So this whole concept of, of trying to spend time on themselves is really hard because they're already overworked. And that's the number one thing that you're going to get said from single single parent households. You'll also get it said from, you know, partners and couples and grandparents and on all sorts of things. But it is a little bit different in single parent because there isn't always that same support system. So with that... One thing that I would really say is you're going to have them be disconnected from themselves and overwhelmed. You know, if they've, let's just say it's a single parent who came in with these three kids, that's a lot to manage. That's a lot to, to work around. That's a lot to try to fit into your schedule. That's a lot to try to have individual time for each of those kids for, you know, a two, three, four parent household or a single parent household. But there is such a disconnect from themselves as a person, they may not even know what's going on with them because they're so just everything's going over their head because they're so tired. And so that's something to be very aware of because you want to work on empowerment with all parental units. With single family households or single parent households, you really want to emphasize this. You want to do a lot of supports, a lot of psychoeducation. Uh, quite a bit of education about boundaries and how you reinforce it and consequences. One thing that also people really miss are rewards. I find those to be some of the best things in family work. I, I, I've seen kids just light up over the moon when they get a random reward, not bargained for, not bribed, you know, nothing like that of, you know, like a new book or a new Game Boy or, you know, going out to get their nails done. 
just because you know what, you were great this week. You really listened to me. I felt like our communication was great. And I just, I wanted to reward you, right? If, if a parent can do that, it's not only a reward for themselves because, you know, they got a great, great interaction with their kids that week, but also it's a re- reward for the kid to encourage it. So that's something that I would really say. And, and yes, there's a little bit more of an emphasis on that with single parent households, but also with all the other forms as well. Um, okay. With that, we're going to go back again to the family and the natural progression of change and the changing of the homeostasis that's happening. Of Differentiation is very normal. This is a classic time for it, something that we want to encourage to a safe extent. And it's very hard. Up until this point, you know, most parents really perceived their kids a certain way. They, you know, they viewed them as someone that they absolutely have to protect, that they need to look after, that they need to teach, and they need to guide. And how do we do that? And now it's become a, a little bit less defined role as, as, as a parent of an adolescent. Right now it's, oh, before I could fixate all of my energy on this kid or making sure that they were at karate on time or make sure that the babysitter was there or, you know, whatever. And it shifted over to, what do I do? They are talking back to me. They have their opinion and I can't just tell them no. They cry and then forget about it. It's, it's a totally different dynamic that shifts quite a bit. And this is okay expressing that to the family that to an extent, this is very normal. You want this. You want someone to be able to find out who they are and how they interact with people. Change is inevitable, you know, Um, and, and this fear response will be feeding quite a bit of these underlying dynamics that are happening. And then they're going to be feeding the fear. They're going to be feeding the aggression. They're going to be feeding the isolation because that's what fear does, right? It has us respond in a way that is not particularly helpful a lot of the time. It can be in crisis situations, but when it comes to parenting, you never really want to parent out of fear. You never really want your marriage to be based out of fear. So how do we do that? I'm going to give an example again with this family. You know, in, in your mind, I want you to picture that I've kind of been, or you have been working with them for uh, a month and a half, two months. And the mom says a comment to you, but it's kind of directed towards the 14 year old. And she says, I miss when my daughter always wanted me around, right? That is so powerful because it is touching on those underlying patterns and dynamics. It's touching on mom's loneliness. It's touching on her fear and how much she wants to care for other people. Remember those basic traits that we had talked about in the beginning. And you know, you can go so much deeper than with that and address the underlying pattern. You can address that fear and you can say, tell me what that's like, or, you know, can you talk to your daughter about that? Or, you know, you look to the daughter and you say, what did you hear your mom just say? You know, and the whole family conversation changes. It no longer becomes the out. Oh, you don't listen to us. You're so defiant. You don't love me. It now became about fear and how people are responding to it. Because that again is the underlying issue. That's the underlying thing that's feeding that unhealthy pattern that they're engaging in. You know, so you want to build the insight to that pattern change. You want to 
have them be aware of what they're really trying to work on. It goes back to those goals. They want to feel validated. They want to feel important. They want to be able to communicate with each other. Well, this underlying talk is the proper communication, you know? Um, And this is what makes it so different in the past years, makes it like there's a deeper part, there's a different type of connection that can happen. And recognizing, the parents recognizing that you had this role with your kid before, it's different now. You know, it's different. You are now a guide. You have to semi-trust that you have instilled great values in your kid and you're going to continue to teach them. But it is no longer, you do this when I tell you to do this. You're going to get talk back. You're going to get questions. You're going to you're going to get them wanting to know why. You know, as a kid, when, you know, when someone walks around saying, why, 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 well, why this? Well, why is this blue? Why is this green? Why do we have to go in the car now? It's annoying. You know, it's annoying, but you, you know, you answer it or you shut it down. But now they truly want to know why, you know, it's not just a simple answer. And this is an opportunity to explain how to be an adult. Well, you know, you have a curfew. And I encourage parents to say this, you have a curfew because I'm going to stay up until you get home and I have a presentation at 8 a.m. and I just can't be up that late. I'm going to be worried about you. I'm going to be stressed. And then by the time you get home, I'm going to be angry. It's going to lead to an argument and I don't really want to do that. And that's just the pattern. That's where we are, right? Instead of because I said so or because you're 16, right? Explaining to them of guiding them on how to do that is the shift, right? Because again, that's addressing the underlying pattern. When a teenager is told because I said so, or because you're a certain age, or because I'm the adult, a lot of the times they just take that as, oh, they don't care about my opinion. They don't get me. They don't want me to have fun. They want me to be like them. They want me to be stuck in this house for forever, right? And that is not the underlying issue. The underlying issue that they're having is I can't grow. I can't be me. I don't know how to be me and my parents stopping me. That's the real thing that's going on, right? And then that goes to a bunch of different underlying feelings. So again, you address, it's not always about, you know, complete defiance or anger or hatred or animosity or control. Sometimes it's just about teaching and how you help them communicate that because that's what this age is. Differentiation is the way I explain it quite a bit is it's being able to leave your comfortable space, explore, and then come back, you know, and say, oh, okay, well, let me give, give me time to process this. Let me see how much I want to continue on with this pattern. Maybe I talk to my parent about it. Maybe I talk to my friends about it. And then I decide what I want to keep. I decide what I want to be. And maybe some of those patterns aren't something I'm aware of, but For the most part, I'm going to say, you know what? I like this new sport. I like this new friend group. I want to talk to someone about it and and process it more. That's differentiation. Maybe they continue to take steps away. Maybe they continue to come back. Maybe they don't come back, but they're still looking back and saying hi. You know, that is something that we want. We want that healthy growth. We want them to find themselves. We talk about failure to launch all the time. Well, the kids who have this failure to launch are the ones who never differentiate. They're too comfortable. The, their, their sphere of, and circle that their parents have made for them was too good. It was never challenged. So that's really where we want to press kids and, and how 
we can instigate that safety at the same time, you know, cause that's a, that's a difficult balance. And that, that's another piece that we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, but that's a difficult balance is, is how do you find the safety plus the differentiation and individualization that's happening there? Um, okay. So with this, I, again, I want you to apply it to the family. Uh, you know, the mom saying that comment of, I just wish when my daughter, you know, she, she liked me, she needed me, she missed me. And the daughter says, well, I miss when you liked me. I miss having a mom. I miss having someone to talk to, right? Again, back to the underlying patterns. Um, she's not feeling loved. So she's acting out. How does the family express love back to the underlying patterns? Know what you're walking into. Know what their general state of being is, how they communicate, how they don't, what they're fearful of communicating about. Because if you can get to those things and focus on those rebuilding or building those things that have worked for them in the past, huge change will happen in the family. Complete and utter change will happen. Now, with that, it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to get resistance. You're going to get some family members, member good or bad, who like you and then who don't like you because you're instigating that change. You are making different things happen, right? And so just know that. Know that you're going to have that that back and forth between people and it's going to be hard, right? But if you're aware of what's going on and what you're trying to change and why those dynamics are feeding themselves – you will see more progress than ever because you're not just going to be looking at, oh, this happened and then this happened. You're looking at why this happened and then bringing insight to it. So what I can say is for your own personal growth, I would always be researching. I would always be trying to learn. You know, it is truly magical when not only you as the clinician can see your own growth and working with a family, but you can see a family change. You can see this whole dynamic shift and you're changing generations most likely of patterns. That is incredibly powerful. You know, you want to make sure when all this kind of change is happening that you're not losing yourself as well. It's very easy within all of these dynamics to just get sucked in and feel at complete loss for yourself, you know, of, oh my gosh, where did I go? How did I get sucked into this argument? How do I get myself out of it? It's far easier to remove yourself when you are trapped if you know what the underlying cause is, right? So with that, um, you know, really utilize the resources that are there. Utilize their current communication skills and build on them. Build on what they truly want. They want to feel validated. They want to have a connection with these people who mean more to them than anything, right? That's what you want to build the strength on. And I would, again, highly suggest talking with the, the parental unit or whoever the head of the family is and starting there because that's going to have the, the fastest change. You can't always do that, though. A lot of the times you do have to go through the sibling or, you know, the one who's showing the most insight in that moment. And that's hard. You know, I, I definitely can't say that that's easy. Family work is not easy, but it is incredibly rewarding to that extent. Um, Okay, so I think just kind of the last thing that I wanted to go over with everyone is really testing your own understanding of family work. You know, where do you feel comfortable? Where do you not? 
where where does your growth need to happen a bit more and and really see what is stemmed from that because you will face hard situations you will face emotional cutoff you will face fusion triangulation dynamics that are just so unhealthy and where you feel comfortable with certain families it's it's very important you know um with that I will kind of leave you with those thoughts in mind. Uh, do not forget that there is a quiz afterwards. If you have any questions at all, please feel free to question or send me any information or resources, questions that you have. I'm happy to direct you towards something that might be helpful. All right. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.